Today's scripture comes from 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 4 through 10. For we know, brothers and sisters loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. You know how we lived among you for your sake. You became imitators for us of us and of the Lord, for you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia. Your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it, for they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. The grass withers and the flowers fade. Well, happy anniversary, everyone. Uh, Many of you know that a 70-year anniversary is a platinum anniversary. 50 is gold. 25 is uh, silver. 10, which is next year, is tin. But I'm assuming almost no one in this room knows what a nine-year anniversary is. A nine-year anniversary is a willow anniversary, like a willow tree. And I feel like as we celebrate our nine-year anniversary, uh, a tree versus uh, a precious metal or rock is very appropriate because uh, when our church started nine years ago, uh, we started very much like a tiny seed. Uh, There was only five of us that started Exilic, including myself and my wife. And I remember the first time that the five of us met uh, together in um, uh, two of our dear friends' living room. I remember we were meeting and I was like, there's just five of us here. Is it okay if we do like a Bible study? And they were like, no, this is like, we want a legit Sunday service. So you have to get up there and like preach. So I got up there and preached in front of four people, including my wife, so awkward. And we did that for the next nine weeks. And after we met for nine weeks, we launched officially our first Sunday service nine years ago. And whenever I tell people this story about how we launched our church in nine weeks with basically no funding, I mean, most churches, start, you know, they take up to six months to a year with, you know, sometimes hundreds of thousands of dollars to pay for equipment and, you know, salaries and rent. So whenever I tell this story with uh, church planters, church planters are people that uh, start churches. So whenever I share this story, the typical response is, that's crazy. Like, no one starts a startup that quickly. And the reason why I mention this story is, if you think nine weeks is fast. The Apostle Paul started the church in Thessalonica not in nine weeks, but in three. How do I know that? If you take a look at Acts 17, verses 1 through 4, it says, when Paul and his companions had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. As was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days, that is three Saturdays or three weeks, 
he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few uh, prominent women. Now, let me just juxtapose for a minute uh, exilic with the church in Thessalonica. Uh, our, church, our church started in nine weeks. Their church started in three weeks, so both of our churches started pretty fast. Uh, their church had a few prominent women. When our church started, we were predominantly women. It was like 80 maybe 85% women when we started our church. Uh, but the main difference between our church and the church in Thessalonica was this. After we launched our church in nine weeks, I'm still here nine years later. When the Apostle Paul started the church in Thessalonica in three weeks, he immediately had to leave that church. Now, why in the world would the Apostle Paul abandon and orphan a church he started in just three weeks? You would never do that with your tech company. So why in the world would the Apostle Paul leave this church that he just started? Well, Acts 17 continues, and it says this, But other Jews were jealous of him, so they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other believers before the city officials shouting, <clears throat> these men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here. And Jason has welcomed them into his house. They are all defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. When they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. <laughs> then they made Jason and the other, others post bond and then let them go. So here we find out the reason why Paul had to abandon this church. There was a mob that was formed that was out to get him. Now today we have things like digital mobs you know, on Twitter and social media, and even that is like sometimes scary, you know, when people are attacking you on, in the cyber world. This was not a digital mob. This was a physical mob that was sent out to get Paul, and they chased him as far as 45 miles to another city. So you can imagine how uh, the Apostle Paul feels. On the one hand, he's running for his life because there's a mob chasing after him. On the other hand, there's a part of him that feels deeply saddened that this church that he started, he has to leave them and abandon them. And so there's a sense, a layer of grief that was added on to that layer of fear of running away. But here's what we also know. What we also know is that a few months later, two people from that core group that started the church in Thessalonica, Timothy and Silas, they meet up with Paul in another city. And they report to Paul that this church that he started is not only surviving, but it's actually thriving. Now, how is that possible? Uh, a couple weeks ago, I, uh, if you missed the announcement, I, uh, we announced my sabbatical, uh, my first one in nine years. And I'll be going on a sabbatical from uh, January to March uh, at, the, uh, at next year. 
Uh, Easter is actually in March next year, so I wanted to come in time for that. Um, and as I think about you know stepping away for three months, how can I be sure that our church can not only survive but actually thrive? I would say three things. Number one, the head of the church is not me. It's Jesus. The head of the church in Thessalonica, it was not Paul. It's Jesus. Number two, we have a great staff and leadership. We're adding another person, Josh, to our staff as of today. The church in Thessalonica also had great leadership. They also had Timothy and Silas that was there. But here's the third reason why this church, despite not having its founder, not only survived, but they actually thrive. The reason why they were able to do that, and the reason why we can do that too, and the reason why we have done that over the past nine years, is because you know what they know. You know the difference between an opinion and a conviction. An opinion is something that you loosely hold, like what's better, in, a, in an outer Shake Shack. For some of you, it's more than an opinion. It's, it's actually very personal, but an opinion is something that you loosely hold. A conviction, on the other hand, is not something that you hold. A conviction is something that has a hold on you. Do you see that? You've been arrested by the truth. I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but sometimes when you shake hands with people, sometimes the, the handshake is like very loose. It's, like, it's almost like you're shaking hands with like a dead fish. That's an opinion. Other times you shake hands with people and it's like, it's like they're crushing your hand because the grip is so hard. It's not even like you have a grip on them, they have a grip on you. That's conviction. Why did this church survive without their founder? It's because they believed that the gospel was not just an opinion, but it was a deep-seated conviction down to their souls. They were arrested by the truth of this gospel and this person, Jesus. How do we know this? In verse 4 to 5, For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, and deep Conviction. There it is again. Uh, one of the people, uh, two of the people in our core group when we started the church are actually here today um, from Orange County. And we were meeting in their living room. One of the, one of the people there is um, Hannah Song. Uh, some of you might know who she is, um, but if you don't, she's the CEO of Liberty in North Korea, Link. And Hannah is one of the the best leaders that I know of, period. She helped turn Link from a Zanga site to an organization that has now saved and rescued over 1,300 North Korean defectors. She's spoken with Hillary Clinton, Meryl, Stre Meryl Streep, and TED Talk in Africa, lots of stuff. She's one of the best leaders that I know of. If you meet Hannah today, it will take you probably 22 seconds before she talks about North Korea eventually. Why is that? Because this is a deep-seated conviction that she has in her heart. Last week when she, last week when she came to our um, new space for the first time, the first thing that she said to me 
was, this space is amazing, Aaron. How are you going to use it to save the North Korean people? <laughs> now, why, why, why is this thing, the thing that she eats, breathes, and sleeps? It's a deep-seated conviction that she has. And my question to each and every one of us here today is this. What is your deep-seated conviction? What is the thing that drives you, wakes you up every single morning? What are you passionate about, convicted about, arrested by? Not just a loosely held opinion, but a deep-seated conviction. Now, you might be here thinking, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not really sure if I have anything that I'm deeply convicted by. And if that's how you feel, that's okay. But eventually, even though you might not feel like you have a conviction, you do have to go and find one. Because life can't be meaningful or purposeful unless you are a convicted, driven kind of person. Now, how do we go about finding those convictions? Simon Sinek, one of my favorite authors, uh, consultant, leadership guru, and he talks, about, he talks about where passion comes from and he writes this. Passion is an output of vision. There it is. Where does passion come from? Where does conviction come from? It is not an input, but it is an output of vision. When we feel that our efforts are contributing to a greater purpose, we feel passionate. Working hard for something we don't uh, care about, that's stress. Working hard for something we love, that's passion. Vision comes first, conviction and passion come second. And so if you want to find something that you're convicted by and passionate about, you first have to find a vision that resonates with you. And that could be saving the lives of North Koreans, ending poverty, ending human trafficking, being a good dad or mom. But we all need a vision that resonates with us, that holds us captive. And the reason why we're gathered here, the reason why we've been here for nine years is because we are convicted by the transforming power of the gospel to forgive all of our sins, rescue us from the most evil regime, death, and for God to usher in a new heavens and a new earth. That's the vision. That's the conviction, that's the passion that drives everything that we do. And it was this vision that arrested the Thessalonians. Now, I know that not all of us here are Christian and that's one of the things I love about our church. And so you might be skeptical and be wondering, well, how can you be so sure that what you're convicted about is the right thing? You know, zeal without wisdom is actually deadly. How are you so sure? Mark Twain in his autobiography wrote this. <clears throat> In religion and politics, people's beliefs and convictions are in almost every case gotten at second hand and without examination from authorities who have not themselves examined the questions at issue, but have taken them at second hand from the other non-examiners whose opinions about them were not worth a brass farthing. So this is what Twain is saying about our own convictions, religious convictions. 
So how is it that we can be sure of what we're convicted about? Hebrews 11 defines faith like this. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. It does not say the conviction of things uncertain, but it says the conviction of things unseen. We might not be able to see God, but that doesn't mean that we can't be certain of God. And there's a component of the psychology of faith where even if we can't see something, that at the same time we can be certain of that thing. Now, how is that possible? I'll say two things. If you want to embrace any worldview or be convicted by anything, I say you need two things. Number one, it has to be intellectually credible. If it's not intellectually credible, you shouldn't be convicted by it. So it has to make rational sense. But number two, it can't just be intellectually credible. It has to be existentially satisfying. If it doesn't move you or transform you or shake you in a good way, why would you want to be convicted by that thing? It doesn't matter. It doesn't make one iota of a difference in your life. And so it needs two things. It has to be intellectually credible, existentially satisfying. And for the Thessalonians, this gospel was both of those things. It made coherent sense, but it actually moved them to their core. And that's why we're here today. That, that conviction moved our core to the core. It's moved our diaconate, who will be installing, to the core. It drives everything that we do and why we're here in the city. And when you have people with conviction, you can change the world. People without conviction, zero passion, you cannot do anything. But when people are convicted, you can you can change the world in verse 7 and 8. This is what we see. And so you became a model. That is the church. You became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia. Your faith in God has become known everywhere. When you are convicted by something, you cannot contain it in. Whether it's a new product that you made, some, a new relationship, maybe you have a new baby, um, maybe you've traveled and you want to post it on social. When you experience something that's great, you cannot contain it in. And this is what was happening to the church in Thessalonica. And by the way, it was not the pastors that were doing this. The, the Apostle Paul was gone. It was the people that were arrested by this truth. Michael Green, a missiologist, talks about this. Evangelism in the early church, he writes this. This must have been not formal preaching, but informal chattering to friends and chance acquaintances in homes and wine shops, on walks and around market stalls. They went everywhere gossiping the gospel. They did it naturally, enthusiastically, and with the conviction of those who are not paid to say that sort of thing. Consequently, they were taken seriously and the movement spread. And I would say similarly, if we are serious about seeing a citywide movement of the gospel take place, that cannot happen unless the majority, not the minority, unless the majority have a fire in their belly about what they believe and why they believe it. That is the only way we can see a citywide movement of the gospel. And my hope is that as we turn nine years old, that when people join our community, that they will meet people 
that are arrested by the truth. That the experience that they have meeting you will not be like a limp handshake as if they're holding a dead fish. But when they meet you, they will, they will meet someone that is deeply convicted by the truth of what they believe in and why they believe it. And what is it that we exactly believe? What is it that we are so passionate about and convicted by? Well, I was in college in the 90s. And for people in my generation, every week, 35 million of us, every single week, tuned into a show called friends every single week it influenced my generation like crazy which is why i was i was sad when i found out one of the characters matthew perry passed away this past week and i don't know if you've ever experienced this before but there are certain kind of deaths that hit you differently like kobe when he died that hit me differently um tim keller obviously when he died that definitely hit me differently but even Matthew Perry, when he died, for some reason that, that kind of hit me differently. And I don't know if it's because we've been quoting Matthew Perry over the course of this past year uh, at our church in his autobiography, but Perry was someone that had it all, lost it all, and then became some kind of spiritual seeker that was seeking for something greater in his life. And I want to read you something from Perry's book, Friends, Lovers, and the Big Terrible Thing, and he writes this. Whatever holes you're filling seem to keep opening back up. Maybe it's because I was always trying to fill a spiritual hole with a material thing. It was everything I thought I wanted. I was going to fill all the holes with friends. The attention that I always felt had eluded me it was about to fill every corner of my life, like a room illuminated by a flash of lightning. People were going to like me now. I was going to be a, a, enough. So this was his conviction as a 24-year-old when he got the character Chandler Bing. But when he writes this autobiography nearly 30 years later, looking back at his 24-year-old self, this is what Matthew Perry writes. I was a kid from Canada who had all of his dreams come true. They were just the wrong dreams. And in hindsight, his new conviction now is that his previous conviction wasn't the right dream. It was the wrong dream. What are you convicted by? How are you sure that that conviction is the right dream and not the wrong dream? For the Thessalonians, the reason why they turned from their idols to the person of Jesus Christ is because they had a new conviction. And as Victor Hugo would say in Les Mis, the supreme happiness of life is the conviction that we are loved for ourselves. Say rather, loved in spite of ourselves. What Hugo I think is alluding to is something bigger than this. The conviction that we are loved in spite of ourselves is really pointing to what? The person and work of Jesus Christ and what he has done for us, who loved us even in the midst of our sins. If you were standing next to, next to someone, there was a bonfire right there, and they said, behold, how much I love you. 
and they jumped into the fire, you would be like, why did you just do that? There's like, that didn't make any sense, right? Why in the world would you do something like that? On the other hand, if there was a burning building with your baby inside, and they said, behold, how much I love you. They run into that burning building, save your baby, but at the cost of their life, then you would understand why they died for you. If Jesus didn't die on the cross to save us from our sins and rise again from the dead, why in the world would he do all this? It doesn't make any sense whatsoever. It'd be like the man just jumping in the bonfire for no reason. But if there was a reason for it, to forgive us for our sins, give us everlasting life, usher in a new heavens and earth, that's totally different. There's a reason for that. And when someone goes and saves your baby's life, that's not just a belief anymore. That's a deep-seated conviction that that person loves you. And that is what Jesus has ultimately done for us on the cross. He loved us so much that he would experience death in our place. And when someone dies for you, you owe them your life. You cannot be a casual fan. You have a responsibility for someone that loved you so, you're hitched to them forever. And you know what that practically means? Practically, it means that when we gather together to sing, man, you have to sing with conviction. You can't just stare blankly at the screen with hollow hearts and hollow eyes. You can't do that. When you listen to the word, you can't just lean back with your arms folded. It's not me speaking. This is the word of God that is being proclaimed. When you live out there, you can't be ashamed about your faith. You have to gossip the gospel because of what he has done for you, because that's what people of conviction do. But that can only happen to the degree, to the degree, to the knowledge and the awareness of how deeply you are truly loved. We started uh, Exilic nine years ago. And so if you do the math, um, I was a 35 young lad. And with a blink of an eye, I am 44. And as I think about however long the Lord has given me, there are two convictions that I have that burn in my heart more than ever before. Number one, the gospel. I just, I, I just want everyone in our city to know the gospel. Everyone. And the second conviction is more of a personal conviction, but I, I just want to do anything that I can to help Asian Americans and people of color. Those are the two things that I want to give my life to with however long God has given me. But what are your convictions? What's your passions? What's driving you? Why do you do the things that you do? What makes you get up in the morning? The first thing that you need to have, though, if you want to change those convictions or find one, you need a vision. Conviction is always an output of that vision. And I can't think of anything that is a bigger vision than God himself and the gospel. And so it's my prayer as we head forward into the future that we would be a people that don't just have an opinion of what the gospel is, but we have a deep-seated conviction about what we believe, why we believe it, why we sing, why we give our money, why we gather every week, why we join community, because there's a deep-seated conviction about everything that we believe in the person and work 
of Jesus Christ. And if we do that, our church will not only survive, we'll thrive. And this message will ring out everywhere. Let's pray. God, would you make us a people of passion and conviction? This is not, the gospel is not like choosing between in and out and Shake Shack. We do not want a loosely held belief, but we want to be a people of conviction that as we hold firmly to the gospel, God, may your gospel hold firmly to us. May you drive everything that we do, everything that we do, and to live our life wholly dedicated for you. May that message ring out from our church to our city and to the world. In your name I pray.